and welcome to Soberholic Podcast. This show is designed to address topics that will encourage, equip, and inspire you to explore life's most difficult topics and overcome your biggest challenges. Today, your hosts, Roger and Jason, will share from their own experience how you can find hope and healing in recovery. Welcome back to Soberholic Podcast. I'm your host, Roger Bowes. I'm in here with my co-host, Jason Rice. And today, we're going to be talking about um, kind of a much-needed topic. We've talked about it from time to time. I don't think that we've ever done a show on it. Yeah, we've just mentioned it here and there. Yeah, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about, uh, well, you know, things to avoid when talking to an addict or an alcoholic and maybe some pointers you can go, you know, leave here with when you're talking maybe to your spouse or your child or, or some of the things that we've just seen that was beneficial. Right. Or even a friend, a close friend or relative. Right. So just really anyone in general that struggles, um, you know, when you're having that hard conversation, these are the things that we found that's important that you avoid but before we do i just wanted to take a moment to say thank you um all of you who's went to our facebook page and like that and just been a part of our soberholic community and willing to share um you know conversations with us through that also those who've went on there and gave us a review on um either be you know itunes stitcher all the different podcast platforms I just want to say thanks for those reviews. Those are very beneficial to us and help us reach more people. So if you haven't done that, you can always do that by going to like Apple Podcast. You can go there and leave a review um, if you want to do a written review, or you can just rate it if you want to just quickly just hit the stars and, and go that route with it. So, or just send up a smoke signal. That's it. Whatever, yeah. whatever works. Whichever right? one. Yeah. So let's talk about it, Jason. Um, we said that we've got some things that we need to avoid Whenever we're working uh, with an addict, when we're talking, maybe those beginning conversations. Oh yeah, what's the, what's your like top thing you say that we should maybe not do when we're talking to them? Um, I w- I would say I probably spend half my half the people I talk to about recovery is probably parents and relatives of a loved one, you know. Um, it seems like I do as much of that as actually talking to addicts and alcoholics and people struggling with addiction. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you, you find the family further along in the process than others. And, and sometimes it's some fairly hard conversations you have to have with them. Um, but I would say the number one thing that I see that should be avoided is the enabling would you agree? Yes, but just for our listeners, what would enabling mean? So any any action where you are helping them to avoid the consequences of their addiction. So a clear example is like bailing them out of jail every time they get arrested. Or if they spend all their money on booze or drugs or whatever, then paying their rent because – they spend all their money and they don't have money for rent. So you, you, you know, you love them. So you want to help them. So you pay their rent. So they avoid those consequences that wouldn't, would normally come otherwise, because what the consequences do is it, is it puts the person in pain and in a desperate situation. And that is usually where there's some motivation for change. Hopefully. Right. Not always. Um, and it's different for different people. Yeah, but, 
I would even say that most of what we're going to talk about today deals with that enablement that you're talking about. I think there's one that we could probably talk about before we even get to those. Okay. And tell me if you agree with me. If if you have someone that you're talking with who is struggling with addiction or um, alcoholism, normally when I have them reach out to me, it's usually when they're, what, drunk. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or just ob- oblivious to what the real conversation is going on. They know that they need help then, but they can't even really say help because they're all over the place, you know? Yeah. And, and that was me. I mean, that's usually when I got so desperate for help. But the conversation changes a lot between when you're sober and when you're high. Right. And so what? how would you say you start that conversation? Okay, first of all, would you start that conversation with someone um, while they're high? No. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I just don't think they're in a place where they can clearly think uh i've called sponsors high and drunk before or whatever and they said call me back <laughs> I, <laughs> I, just, I tell them i'm the same we'll talk call tomorrow me, yeah just call, call me, me beforehand yeah now, i mean i have talked to people who you know were not so far gone and i was like well they're they're you know they're reasonably talking right now so i'll it just depends on on how intoxicated they are but generally no so we wouldn't start the conversation while they're at least hammered, right? I mean, right. maybe if they've drank a little or they've done a little bit of something they shouldn't in, in drug form, but not when they're kind of out of their mind. Right. Because if you're too impaired to drive, then now's not the conversation. Right. No, because they're not, they're not their normal self. Right. And so whatever decisions they may or may not make about recovery at that point or how they feel about recovery or maybe going to get treatment or whatever, it's going to change. So that way, so if they come to you now, if they're hammered out of their mind, do we still have that conversation? Like they've approached you personally while they're drunk, while they're high, you know, do we, do we still try to have that conversation or do we stall it till the next day? I would say uh, my first instinct is stall it until they're not super hammered, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, because I, I've, I've taken people to rehabs drunk, high, you know. I picked up six back on the way. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was know, just come try- on, man, we're going to the hospital. I was just trying to. I've done the same thing. I've just, I've just, just trying to get them there, um, because you know, knowing that when they were sober, they ain't, they're not going to go. I mean, I know ne- I've never gone into treatment sober, yeah, ever. So. It's that's that's a tough you know judgment call that you have to make. I mean, but I don't know that there's a right or a wrong with that. I just know that it's more difficult to really get to the topic when you're talking to someone who's who's really just drunk or or high. Because while you're trying to talk to them about recovery, they want to talk about problems, right? Or they want to talk about their job. I mean, we're not here talking about your job. We're talking about you trying to get your life better. Yeah. Well, you know, I I got a flat tire. I had a flat tire yesterday, you know, and you say it's really hard to stay on point and talk with someone with a logical, meaningful conversation. Yeah. Like arguing with them about their substance abuse or whatever. That's definitely not going to work when they're intoxicated. Um, so, which that kind of brings us, um, to our next thing, which would be like preaching, uh, maybe you would call it lecturing. I guess it depends on what side of the, your religious background that comes from. 
But would it would it make sense to just maybe talk down to someone, use words um, or ideas, maybe even our, our our religious ideas of what we believe? Is it use good to use those as weapons against them? I don't think so because there's so say say you're just you're if as a loved one or a friend or or family member you're just trying to get the person to see they have a problem. You can easily do that without being condescending and raining down, you know, um, some type of litany of list of all their all the ways and laying out the evidence of here's why you're an alcoholic or an addict or whatever. You don't have to do that to get somebody to see that they have a problem because you can just ask them questions and just steer them there, mm-hmm. you know, through through a few questions, um, you know. Like asking them, do you think you have a problem? You know, and it's it's rare when somebody really does have a problem. It's rare for them, in, in my experience, talking to, to talking to people. It's rare for them to say, "No, I'm fine." You know, I mean, you'll get that from every once in a while, but most of the time, when somebody has clear, pretty intense consequences that they face from their substance abuse, I mean, it's it's easy to point those things out to them if, if they do say no i don't have any problem at all yeah and most most people who struggle with addiction they, they may use that as a shield to deflect the, the thing but they know that they have a problem right you know but to sit there and say look man you're you're a horrible father <laughs> yeah. you know you're going to hell because you know the lord hates drunkards you know and, yeah. and all of these different things um and just beat them up even worse than they've beat themselves up at this point. I don't think that you're getting through. Um, I think they know everything that you're telling them in inside, deep down inside. They know those things are true, and and that's one of the reasons they keep medicating through drinking and drugging is to try to make that that feeling go away. Yeah, and it just starts to cycle over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, I think most most people who have substance abuse issues they're already carrying a lot of guilt and shame around. And so piling it on even higher at that point in time, I don't, I don't see how it's helpful. And it's funny how, how we talk about this because I, I know being in church for a while now myself, because I didn't start in church, um, been in church for a while, and I've seen that, you know, used to that there was this idea that the people who struggle with addiction or, or drinking, they didn't go to church. That was the unchurched people that were having these problems, and that's the reason they were having them. But that is so far from the truth because within the walls of the church, members of your church today are struggling with addiction. And so what I've seen now on the flip side of this, being part of a church family, is trying to help people um your friends or your loved ones may be just trying to battle you with scripture just trying to give you all this scripture to help show you how you're in the wrong um i I don't believe that maybe there's a time for it so i'm not gonna say never but i don't think that using scripture as a weapon to show someone that they are an alcoholic or an addict is beneficial i definitely think that's something we should avoid right i mean Unless they think that it's okay with scripture to be, a, you know, to be drinking alcoholically. Oh, I agree. I mean, yes. <laughs> there's, yeah. but, but that's probably going to be a very rare thing. 
Yeah, probably more so, and we'll talk about this in a later episode, things that you should do would be use Scripture to encourage them, right. to show them that there's hope yeah. and there's a way out of what yep. they're in. Yep. But um, we won't go down that one right now. What's what's some other ones? Um, so some other ones is um, like trying to make excuses for their behavior, like lying about their behavior or making excuses. So like an example of that would be, you know, they missed – going to work the last three days because of their substance abuse. And so you call their boss and say, oh, they're sick. You know, that's that's why they haven't been there. Or lying to family members, you know, or or tr- trying to clean up, you know, behind their, their – Clean up behind them. I like that because <laughs> yeah. that happens so much with me. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, there was times that I would go to jail – and for whatever reason, maybe the cops would let me call my parents before I even got to jail. Um, or when I got there, they were my first one to call. And my mom was there to bail me out in, in no yeah. time flat. Yeah. So that was really, you know, she. I don't know that she made excuses for me, but I guess she did in some ways. I, I've never really called it that. But she certainly, like you said from the very beginning, enabled the situation. Yeah. Uh, by no means do I say that my my drinking and drugging was my mother's fault because it was not. No, it was no. completely mine. I just had to say that so if she hears this because I and she she's heard me say this a hundred times, but I do believe and she would agree with me now too that if she wasn't there to clean up my past mistakes and try to love me to death, then maybe I would have learned my lessons faster. Right. Yeah, and I that's the same case for me. I mean. With with my mom, it was it was a learning curve, you know, and that's what we see with a lot of of loved ones of addicted, um, is we see you know they they enable in the very beginning, and then hopefully you know they they start learning along the way. Thankfully, nowadays there's all kind of great resources that can help somebody learn all that a lot faster. Um, we had Mike Vest on with the Addiction Prevention Coalition a couple weeks ago, and they have these meetings called PAL, uh, the Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, where they have, you know, group uh, group meetings where they educate, you know, parents about, you know, how best to to help that addicted loved one and to avoid all these different things, all the pitfalls that, that go along with that. And, so there's a lot more resources available. There's there's Al-Anon. There's all kind of different things that you can get involved with, but it it is a it is a learning curve that we see a lot. Of. All right. So like another thing that I think that we can avoid when we're talking to a addicted loved one or addicted friend is to avoid threatening or like these scare tactics, ultimatums. Yeah, that would fall in there too. I think because um, well, first of all, like. Man, I I can remember people trying to scare my parents in general, um, big, trying to make me quit drinking. They would do, do different things to try to scare me into quitting. And honestly, there was really nothing they could do to me that I hadn't already seen worse on the street. I mean, right. I had had guns pulled on me. There wasn't nothing scarier than seeing those blue lights behind me, um, you know, when I was riding down the road. And I knew I had stuff all in my car. And that wasn't enough to make me quit. But you know those ultimatums like you're talking about even like you know if you don't if i say you're doing it again then i'm putting you out yeah. and then you don't put them out right you know the, those things really never worked so so let's let's get into that a little bit so 
do you think it's good to to maybe threaten or maybe that's not the right word but to quit enabling if if you're going to back it up it, to to say hey if you if if you're letting them live there or whatever to say if you don't you know get help about your problem well then you can't live here anymore if you're going to back it up well it's kind of um in order to stop enabling, then you have to draw a boundary for yourself. Right. If I'm helping someone that I love, then I have to make a boundary for me. And like one of my boundaries is I'm, I'm not going to talk to you if you're drunk, you know, right. because I, I don't let that happen. Um, where I'm at now with my family and my kids, there was a point in my life where I would let people I was trying to get sober come stay on my couch until we got them into a rehab. I don't do that anymore. Right. It's not good for my, my marriage to have another guy or a woman laying up on the couch while we're doing this. So I had to set these boundaries. If, um, if, if I'm married and my, if my child is out, you know, struggling with drugs or alcohol and we choose to finally make this decision to keep them out, if they choose to drink well, I'm simply backing up the choice that we made while they were sober. I wouldn't have let this boundary. I wouldn't have set this boundary while they were drunk. I would have told them sober. Right. Look, if you if you come home again drunk, you're not coming back in this house. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I would do. Now, I, I say this because none of my kids have been through this yet. Right. I've been and on the and other me side neither. of that. Yeah. And so a lot of parents would go, "You don't know what it's like." Hey, I agree with that. I, I, maybe I don't know what it's like, but I've seen the other side of this outcome. You can call it tough love. You can call it what you want. But if I love them enough, then I'm going to to say it's time to get out. For instance, with my wife, and she, she's shared this before in meetings, and she wouldn't care if I said this, but, you know, she had um, – she was living at her parents' house, and she had just had a child, which is my oldest boy, who was on here not too too many weeks ago. Yeah. Was talking about what it's like uh, for Gen Z, right? Mm-hmm. But um, when he was born, they were living at their house, and she was battling her drug addiction. Well, they said, "Okay, if you if you do drugs again, um, you're going to get out, um, and we're going to call DHR." Well, sure enough, they called her used again. They called DHR on their own daughter, yeah. took custody of Matthew, my oldest son, and kicked her up her butt out on the, on the street. She was living in Walmart's parking lot. Yeah. So they did exactly what we're talking about. And she'll tell you that her parents loved her enough to do those things. And, yeah, and that but, was the best thing for her, oh, I man, think. I think without that, she wouldn't be where she's at today. So what kind of threatening would would not be helpful um, like I, I, another question. I just I'm trying to think of a a good example to give right off the top of my head. Um, like when they're intoxicated, threatening them. Well, that's not going to work. Period. Right. We're going to end up in a fist fight. Yeah. It's going to happen there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but you know. I, I think that there are ways to to make boundaries, and like I could threaten you. Not in a threatening way. Well, I mean, even like if you don't get a job by this weekend, you're getting out of this house, or you're you're not. I'm not giving you no more money for gas money if you can't keep a job. You know, right? Those those are probably healthy threats to have, but I think that they become unhealthy when we don't back up those threats. Right. So threats without any teeth, and 
think of it as creating boundaries, not threats. Right. Yeah. Like, um, there, there are some, I don't think that like when I say like in the beginning, I said scare tactics. Sometimes you, I don't know the best way to say this because there's not no one hard, fast, cut and dry way of saying this, but there's, there's times that we can imply that we don't love that person because of their drugs and drinking. And that if they don't quit, then we're leaving or whatever. Just because you put someone out of their house, out of your house, or you create a boundary, you don't want to send the message that you don't care about that person anymore, and that you you've cut you're cutting them off completely. Right. It is that you're 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 drawing this safe boundary for your sanity and to keep your marriage healthy and to keep your families healthy. But you know, at any point that you want to compromise you don't want to compromise your boundary but if they want to change their behavior you're there to still help them right but it may be at arm's reach yeah i mean because an addict or somebody struggling with substance abuse can drag a whole family down mm-hmm. just down the drain uh it's easy to do because there's you know behind every addict or alcoholic there's usually a tornado of chaos that that is ensuing and it's easy for the whole family to get wrapped up in that yeah so rather than saying like you know you're not coming back in my house. I'm never helping you again. It would be better to say something like, okay, here's the number to your local homeless shelter. They'll help you tonight. And then if you'll get the numbers and stuff where we can get you in to, to a rehab, then I'll drive you there. I'll yeah. help you do those things. Right. But you've created your healthy boundary to keep them out of their dysfunction and their insanity out of your life. And then you're still saying, I will help you, but – we're going to, I'm going to have to help you from a distance. Right. Yeah. It's good stuff. So what about, um, we covered lying or excusing their behavior, mm. but what about, um, just taking over their responsibilities? That's a tough one. Um, I think it depends on, on what it is. I mean, so, so things like, you know, paying their rent, you know, the, the financial responsibilities, uh, is the one that you see a lot of a lot of loved ones take over, and that puts undue stress on them. Sometimes they can't; it's, it's too much to even do. Um, or you know, paying court costs and court fines and all that kind of stuff. Um, thanks, mom, for all you helped me with. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's it's your natural instinct to want to do that. But I. Like I said earlier, it's a, it's a part of enabling when you do those things that you're you're letting the addict or alcoholic avoid the consequences for longer, and those consequences could be the very thing that motivates them to want to change. And so, the the one responsibility I think of though that makes me kind of question avoiding it is what what if they have children, you know, and you're the grandparents. Like how do you, how do you navigate that? See, that's hard right there because that's that's going to change a lot from person to person. That's subjective, some, yeah. Some like some kids would willingly give you their grandkids, you know, your grandkids to take over because they don't want the responsibility of handling it anyway, right? And so maybe that's right where you want to be, so that you know they're in a healthy place. Well, then, then it's about trying to seek courts to to get you the right, you know, the rights that you need to handle those things. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think that's a whole show in that's itself. That's a whole nother thing, yeah. But what I was thinking is back to kind of 
when I was around my son's age, you know, we were talking about the whole Gen Z thing a minute ago, and I and I look at him and some of the things that we've done with him. Although he's not an addict, um, and, and has never had any, any of those tendencies like his parents, but I think of me when I was his age, I literally, you know, we're talking about taking response, taking over the responsibilities. I didn't even know how to wash clothes when I was 16, 17 years old. So I went out, I got as high as I could for as long as I could, threw my clothes over in the corner, and Mom cleaned up, did everything for me. I mean, she would make my bed for me. She did everything for me. And it was for her, it was to show, show me that she loved me. And that's great, but there was never a consequence for any action that I ever made. And so I think about how... You know, what does it look like in today's society? How are we taking over the responsibility as parents or loved ones uh, of that addict? Are we masking or covering up all the things they should do? Are we taking their kids on the weekend, like you're talking about the kids? Are we babysitting so that they can go get high? So they can go do whatever they want to, yeah. You know, um, so there's a lot of ways that we do this, and under the, the covering of love, but... You know, sometimes you just need to know, well, you can't go out this weekend. Now, if you're truly an addict or alcoholic, you'll just do it at your house or you'll take your kid to the dope house with you. Yeah. I mean, that's just part of the insanity that comes with that. And so you, you may say now, well, I, it's it's important for me to make sure that this child who's you know has nothing to do with this is protected. Sure. That's oh, the reason yeah. I keep them. Uh, and, again, that goes back to what we were talking about a second ago. There, there's probably a whole show in that in oh, itself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But trying to trying to lessen this one gets at the, the heart of what we've been talking about. Trying to lessen their consequences to their actions is gonna, in the long run, um, just enable them to keep using uh, for longer. You know, and it goes back to what I've said many times. I heard uh, my old pastor say that we want to try to raise their bottom. Yeah, and so if you can make them feel the responsibility of their you know, their own actions. If all of those things, um, we don't want to mask or cover any of those things. We want to make sure that they, they feel the weight of what, what's yeah. going on and the bad choices they make. Yeah. And that they hit a bottom quicker rather than later. Right. That was my home group in new Orleans. It was called raise the bottom and, uh, it was great. Um, great group. Uh, and that's what we always, you know, we talk about the elevators going down, and you can get off at any point. But if if you're a family member of a loved one who's addicted and you you keep on trying to lessen the consequences, you're you're you know, you're preventing them getting off the elevator. You're preventing them from from hitting a bottom every time, then they're just gonna keep doing it for longer. Ain't no reason to get off the elevator no for a comfortable ride. Yeah. All right, so this brings us to our last one, and it's it's you know just feeling the responsibility, you know, feeling responsible. I guess is the better way of saying it. Feeling responsible for their actions, and this is really where I believe my mom landed a lot. And all of that stuff that I mentioned is that she felt that maybe she didn't parent well enough, that she had done something, allowed something to happen, and so all of her effort was to try to cover up this feeling that she she didn't do something well. And that's just not true. Right. I mean, we are all responsible for our own actions. And, you know, that's the reason I can sit here and, and make sure that my mom and everyone else around me 
knows that they did not do what happened to me. It was my choices that led to that. Even when I when I go around to different churches and, and recovery groups and share, it's in my testimony that I was raised by loving parents. I, you know, it wasn't a very dysfunctional family like I hear some people say. Right. But um, you know, I just made choices, and one small compromise of I've heard you say many times, one small compromise after another just led to a snowball of just bad bad mistakes in my life. Yeah, yeah and the same. I, I have a similar story. I mean, I was raised in a great home mom and dad were wonderful examples to me wonderful parents and um you know my mom is uh, since i've been sober this time a few times she's brought up you know and apologized that after my dad passed away when i was 12 you know that i i wish i would have done this better and i'm sorry i didn't do this and i'm like and every time i go mom you know that was me you know, I, I'm responsible for the actions that I took. You didn't do any of this. And I could see, I've never been in this position, but I could see how that would be something as a loved one of an addicted, uh, family member that you would, you would always struggle with feeling like you played some part in it. And I mean, there are definitely cases where you, you do play a part in it, but there, there are plenty of instances like with my mom, you know, she didn't play any part in that and, you know, she shouldn't have ever felt responsible and like, you know, feel guilty for anything that I did. And so if you're that person today, I hope you can maybe weed through that and, and realize that you're not at fault here. They're, um, they're capable of making their own decisions. The person that you're, you're talking about or, or listening to this this podcast about because there's a person in mind if you click the title of this podcast that's there there's some hurt going on in your life you try to figure out how to manage or navigate that and uh, let them take ownership of their own stuff you don't have to do that today uh, the main thing you can do is create a boundary that's helpful for you and the rest of your family well, Jason, um, that is the end of another podcast. Yep. I did want to say this to our listeners that I know a lot of them watch us on uh, Facebook or on video, wherever we put it out at. And if you do watch us, we love it. But also remember that there are some of these episodes that we don't do, whether they're call-ins from listeners or others, that would go straight to our podcast yeah. platforms. Uh, that are not on Facebook or social media, but would be Apple, Stitcher, those things we mentioned earlier yeah. in the show. And so go and um, subscribe there. And that way you can get them where you're listening on the road. If you're new to the program, we always keep these right at about 30 minutes. We try not to go real, really long. We want to structure them in a way that you can grab it on the go and mm-hmm. um, can listen to it in one small setting and get on down the road. And we've been doing this a year. A year, every week, every week we throw one of these things out. Yeah. Been a very few weeks we've missed. A year went by really fast. It sure did, but I've enjoyed it, man, and looking forward to another year of yep. it. Yep. All right. So I'm Roger. I'm Jason. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out soberholicpodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.